Why We Argue podcast. I am Matthew Gariglia, PhD candidate in history at the University of Connecticut and producer of the Why We Argue podcast. Why We Argue is produced by Humility and Conviction in Public Life, a project of the University of Connecticut, which explores how we balance our deepest commitments with open-mindedness and intellectual humility. The series, which is made possible by the John Templeton Foundation, features interviews with scholars on the current state of public discourse and democracy. Today, we have a special episode. The segments you're going to hear were all taken from talks given at the Workshop on Political Polarization and Epistemic Arrogance, which was hosted by Humility and Conviction in Public Life and took place in Hartford, Connecticut on April 7th and 8th, 2018. So in today's episode, you'll hear segments of talks from Michael Lynch from the University of Connecticut, Jennifer Soule from the University of Sheffield, Steve Sloman of Brown University, Alessandra Tanasini of Cardiff, Lainey Watson of Edinburgh, Elizabeth Krumray Mancuso of Pepperdine University, and Heather Baddeley, also from the University of Connecticut. So let's begin by listening to a bit of Michael Lynch's introduction from the workshop. The workshop, uh, as I'm sure all of you know, is sponsored by an engaged research project called Humility and Conviction in Public Life. That project is generously funded by a significant grant from the John Templeton Foundation, and I want to thank the John Templeton Foundation for making this event and the project possible. It's also received uh, support from the university and significant support from the University of Connecticut as well. So the idea behind the project, just to, so that you sort of understand the bigger picture, is to try and figure out how to balance two often competing values in democracy. On the one hand, democracies need their citizens to have convictions. An apathetic electorate is no electorate at all. On the other hand, democracies also need their citizens to be able to listen to each other, to dialogue with one another to have perhaps some sense that they could learn something from each other. That, those two values, and our attempt to balance those, explain the title that we have given the project, Humility and Conviction in Public Life. The project uh, consists of uh, our, a large research component, uh, and I'm happy to say that leaders of, of some uh, quite a number of our uh, research teams are here and will be speaking this weekend. That's very exciting. These teams are leading, leading projects uh, throughout North America and Europe on the themes of the project, uh, the greater project. The, the uh, project also sponsors public forums, a podcast, Why We Argue. It sponsors educational initiatives, and a variety of community engagements, in fact, many right here in, in Hartford. So it's a, it's a large project, it's ambitious, uh, uh, hopefully in a humble way. <laughs> but that's to be determined. This particular workshop is driven by the idea that, or the observation, let's put it as an observation, that people on different sides of the political spectrum, especially at this political moment, tend to regard those on the other side, not just with suspicion, but with a sense that those people think they know it all. Those people think they can tell us what's right or wrong. And that's true on both sides, I think. 
And so if that's, that's you know, an observation, a hypothesis, we might say, if you'd rather put it that way. And part of what motivated this, this idea for this workshop was to investigate this idea of know-it-allism, arrogance, epistemic arrogance in particular. Does that attitude, if people do exemplify it, have an effect on the health of public discourse in this country or other democracies? So that's the thought. Not all the pro uh, talks will be on explicitly on that topic. Some will, some won't. Some will be on concepts that are surrounding that neighborhood, uh, as would be fitting. Okay, and next we're going to hear a segment from Jennifer Saul's talk, Shift Terms and Political Manipulation, Immigration, in quotes, in the Brexit campaign. This is a fascinating talk about racist dog whistling, how to identify dog whistles, how to combat dog whistles, and the way that dog whistles about Brexit and immigration were so insidious in the kind of racial climate of the UK. What's going on in the Brexit referendum is not so clear. So if you try to use the term racist, I think it's going to be a messier situation. I think the norm of racial equality holds in the UK. Um, and it seems like the paradigm case of racism is still prejudice against dark-skinned people. And so racist might work to diffuse the dog whistle with respect to some targets. But it's not going to work that well for the other targets. Um, so if the person, the, the, the group of people that you're talking to, if what they're worried about is Muslims, they may take this not to be about race. <coughs> Same for Eastern Europeans, even more so. Right? They, well, actually, Eastern Europeans are really rather pale. Right? And if the paradigm case of racism is dark-skinned people, they're not going to recognize this as racism. Syrians, it's a specific country. It's not racism. It's one country. It's nationalism. Um, foreigners in general, again, they could be all races. Some of them are Swedes, very pale. Um, refugees, that's not about race, that's about a particular kind of status. Europeans, and it doesn't seem like that's going to be a form of racism on the sort of paradigm case understanding of racism is about dark-skinned people. Now, there are actually really interesting discussions to be had about whether these things count as racism. Right, these kinds of prejudice. And that'll turn a lot on, of course, how you understand race to work and how you understand racism to work. But what matters for my purposes isn't whether these are actually cases of racism, but whether people think of them as racism, because that's what you need to get the target match that gets people worried. So suppose you've got an ad that's accused of dog whistle racism. People who accept the norm of racial equality will start monitoring themselves but it's only going to be effective if the target that they take to be the target of the ad is one that's seen as the target of the norm of racial equality. And probably Europeans aren't thought of that way. Um, an anti-Muslim Brexit voter hearing the term immigrant described as racist, they're still going to be affected by the dog whistle most likely because they don't see their sentiment as being about race at all. They think it's about religion, and they'll feel angry and misunderstood. Moreover, they because they think it's about religion, what you need to trigger is a norm about religious equality, and that norm is going to be much less widespread. 
Remember, in the UK, we're dealing with a country that actually has a national religion. Right? The Queen is the head of the Church of England. Right? The, the, head, the Church of England is the national religion of the country. So the idea that you shouldn't favor any religion is not really so embedded. Um, so what can you do? You could attempt to diffuse all the possible interpretations by listing them off and going after them one by one, um, but that's going to be pretty messy, conversationally difficult, and people are going to be opposed to at least some of what you're saying because that's not how they see the ad. But also, as I just noted a little bit, we don't have norms against all of these things. So is there a norm against xenophobia? Um, I think it's probably true that nobody says, <laughs> hi, I'm xenophobic, right? They're not comfortable with that self-identity, but they won't recognize what they're doing as xenophobia. They'll say, I'm not xenophobic. I'm fine with most foreigners. It's just the Romanians I don't like. I'm not convinced there's a norm against xenophobia, at least not as strong a norm as the one against um, racism. National pride is a socially acceptable thing in a way that racial pride isn't. Um, the, the Scottish National Party has, you know, Nationalist Party has national in its name, right? So nationalism is much more socially acceptable. And somebody who's fine with nationalism is probably not going to be worried about not wanting foreigners around. I've mentioned already that religious bias is more acceptable. Is there a norm against Islamophobia? Sadly, I don't think there is. Um, a recent study in the UK carefully distinguished Islam from fundamentalist Islamic groups. And despite distinguishing those, 50% of UK citizens took Islam, not fundamentalist Islamic groups, but Islam to pose a threat to Western democracy. I don't think there's any widely accepted norm of not being anti-European or anti-Eastern European. <clears throat> Maybe you should move to a catch-all term like bigotry instead of racism. There is an anti-bigotry norm. I, again, I don't think people comfortably self-identify as bigots. <laughs> but again, I think that norm's understood in a wide variety of ways. Um, people who think Muslims are dangerous will think it's not bigoted to say that. They'll think they have evidence for it and so on. Next, we have a brief segment from Lenny Watson's fascinating talk, the right to know and the right to ask, in which Lenny asks if there is an epistemological right to asking and knowing and getting truths. What is the right to know? Well, like I said, it's an epistemic right, um, which is uh, on my account as uh, rich and substantive as any other form of right. So I regard right as a complex entitlement that provides justification for the performance or prohibition of certain actions, either by the right holder or by another party, including individuals, governments uh, or states. Um, by complex entitlement, um, I'm drawing on the uh, widely adopted Hoffeldian schema of rights um, proposed by Wesley Hoffeld. Hoffeld, uh, and understanding rights um, within the context of that schema as composed of a number of different elements, um, such as pre uh, privileges, claims, powers, and immunities. Okay, so uh, a good example of um, uh, this schema would be property rights. So um, 
take my mobile phone, for example. Uh, I've got a privileged right to use my mobile phone, which just means that I've got no duty or obligation not to use my mobile phone. Um, I've got a claim right to use my mobile phone, which means that I can ask you to stop using my mobile phone um, and I can prevent you from using my mobile phone if you do so without my permission. And you also have a duty not to use my mobile phone uh, without my permission. Yeah, an immunity right means that I can't uh, affect, no, no one can affect my claim right to using my mobile phone. Uh, I have a power right use my mobile phone uh, so I have a, a right to um, waive my claim right against you using my mobile phone which means I have a right to let you use my mobile phone okay so um, those are the four kind of aspects of the schema uh, epistemic rights just like property rights except that they attach to epistemic goods rather than uh, property epistemic goods being information knowledge understanding and truth and so on so epistemic rights afford their bearer a complex set of entitlements that provide justification for the performance and prohibition of certain actions regarding epistemic goods. So another example here uh, with the doctor, if I go to have my um, blood sugar levels taken by the doctor, um, I'm going to pick up the results. I have a privileged right to know the results of the blood sugar test. So I have a, no duty or obligation not to know the results. I also have a claim right to know the results, meaning that uh, my doctor has a duty to provide me with the results and uh, no, uh, not to misinform me or give me false or misleading information about the results. Um, I have a power right, meaning that I can waive my right to know the results so I can say I don't want to know the results of my blood sugar test. And I have an immunity right, which means that no one can affect my claim right and take it away. So it's just the same picture, but with regards to epistemic goods. Um, so this use of uh, the notion of an epistemic right is distinct from the notion that is um, where it has been employed in epistemology. Um, the notion has generally been used to refer to the right to believe. Um, and specifically in the context of debates around justification and the justification of beliefs, whether I have like good justification, whether I'm entitled to believe this or that thing. Um, and maybe the most kind of contentious version of that, that debate being around the question of whether or not I have the right to believe that there is a God. Um, so this, it, this account of epistemic rights that I'm presenting here is, is meant to be much broader than that. It's meant to encompass the right to know, the right to be informed, the right to truth, the right to understand all the epistemic goods, and it extends beyond um, the mere privilege right that is discussed in the, uh, the literature concerning the right to believe. So most importantly, it involves a claim right, which imposes a duty on another person. Okay, and now we're going to move on to Michael Lynch, co-PI of Humility and Conviction in Public Life. His talk at the workshop was entitled Arrogance, Truth, and Public Discourse. And in this clip, you're going to hear him talk about the idea of tribal arrogance. And then I'm going to call it tribal arrogance. This is an idea that being arrogant about your worldview, not because it is yours alone, but because it is yours qua membership in a group or tribe, where membership in that tribe or group is crucial to your self-identity. So it's not just that 
So the idea here is you're arrogant about your worldview. You have this idea of unimprovability in the face of uh, what others bring to the table. But you have that precisely because you see, let's say, that aspect of your worldview as essentially tied to a tribal membership that you see as important for your self-identity. I think this is, when we talk about, the reason I'm bringing this up, hopefully is fairly obvious, I think this is the sort of arrogance that we see most often manifested in public discourse. If we see it manifested at all, it's often tribal arrogance. So as I say here, in line with our remarks just above, the tribally arrogant uh, may be such that their arrogance arises from the, uh, from the delusion that if the relevant group or community is convinced of something, then it's true. Or it might be that the truth of the matter is simply unimportant or ignored in this, uh, in this discussion. What matters is only group loyalty or tribe loyalty. They are arrogant in either way on behalf of that loyalty. So I think often this is what's going on when, um, I mean, this is a large claim. This is a paper unto itself, but again, this is just a chat. Um, I think this is often what's going on when people find themselves or we see we find people defending a view in such a way that they don't see it as possibly under discussion. It cannot be questioned. But it's not necessarily because the view is something that uh, we might begin to suspect that they've thought out or they, they, they come to embrace because of some set of reasons. But they, they, they embrace it because their tribe embraces it. Because they, and that's important to their self-identity. They don't want to be seen as the sort of person that would deny that because then they'd be out of the tribe or so they Lots of social psychologists and psychologists in general have, have, have done work that's relevant to this as a number of different philosophers. Many, some of the people in this room have, uh, and some people not. Some people like Dan Kahan have talked about things that are bare on tribal arrogance. But all I wanted to do now is signal that that's a type of epistemic arrogance and a relevant one for our discussion. Okay, I might also very quickly add that epistemic arrogance could be regarded by, under some def definitions as a kind of dogmatic closed-mindedness. That's a phrase that Heather Baddeley will talk about uh, tomorrow, uh, I suspect, or at least could come up. Um, uh, I'm open-minded to, to it coming up. I think it's, you know, I'd love to hear it about it. But So I think you could describe it in her terms as a type of dogmatic closed-mindedness. But it's not, and I think I think she agrees with this. It's not. It's not what she calls closed-mindedness in general, because as she may talk about tomorrow, um, she thinks that in some cases being closed-minded uh, is not a, as she would call it, an intellectual vice. Uh, could even be an intellectual virtue. There are cases, in other words, where it might be, put it roughly, from the standpoint of the ideal of the space of reasons, not be particularly bad to be closed-minded. Right. It's an interesting question. I'm conceding that that's the case, but I'm, I, 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 what I'm trying to flag is what I'm talking about is something that if it's a type of closed-mindedness, is a very certain sort of closed-mindedness, which I'm about to argue is generally, in fact, I think probably always not a good thing from the standpoint of the ideal of democracy as a space of reasons. The final note that I want to make in my chat is that arrogance is often, though not exclusively, an affliction of the powerful the privilege, and those who perceive themselves. So that's an important bit. 
As I've been reading, like so many of us nowadays, Hannah Arendt uh, and the origins of totalitarianism. <coughs> Don't know why, just came up. Um, uh, but, you know, I've been reading it. One of the things that she emphasizes um, that uh, I think is, is right is that one of the ways that power corrupts is in convincing us that we are in some sense immune from error, that any blame lies elsewhere, and that the basis for our confidence is genuine, not based on bad faith. And I think that's relevant as well when we think about epistemically arrogant. So it, you can be epistemically arrogant no matter what your social position in life, uh, no matter uh, uh, what your position in general, as far as I'm concerned. But um, it's particularly it, – it is not perhaps surprising given the remarks that I just alluded to Arendt, uh, I subscribed to Arendt, that we would find it to be often an affliction of the powerful. Next, we're going to have two papers back-to-back. -back. The first is going to be from Alessandra Tanasini from her talk, Arrogant and Humble Convictions. And this clip, we're going to hear her discuss the topic of epistemic anxiety. And after that will be Elizabeth Kumre Mancuso uh, from the talk, Religion as a Predictor of Intellectual Humility and the Role of Right-Wing Authoritarianism, in which she discusses the complicated relationship between religion, humility, and arrogance. What matters here is that confidence is not a belief or a judgment about the probability, right? Because you can, have, you can be confident without belief, and you can have the belief without confidence. Right, so you can have a hunch that a view is correct. You feel so confident about it that that prompts you to go and investigate and try to find evidence. Right, so there you don't have the belief. You don't believe it's true. You're actually very well aware that you don't have the evidence one way or the other. But you have a hunch, and you feel confident that your hunch is correct, and that's what prompts you to try to gather evidence. Right. Similarly, you can have a belief but feel so unconfident about it. And as I get older, this is happening, I don't know when it happens to other people, but it's happening to me more and more. So I, I've, I've started to obsess about my passport because I've become aware that I, my memory is, you know, short-term memory is sort of less good than it used to be. So I keep checking things more often than I used to. I perfectly remember it there because I remember putting it there. But I've lost confidence in in, in my in my thoughts. And so if I'm, it's not that I believe it's not there. I don't think it's a case of inconsistent beliefs. It's just that I really believe it's there, but I can't help feeling anxious about it. And so I check again. And so they, somehow my memory has failed to, to, to which I can retrieve, does not come with the validity tag for some reason, which is this lack of confidence, right? And so you can have belief without confidence and confidence without belief. And so they are not, these feelings are just not actually beliefs, right? They are emotional. And I want to say that when we are talking about feeling more or less confident, we are talking about the intensity of this feeling. Now, I want to say that epistemic anxiety is the opposite of confidence, right? If confidence is what you feel when you feel that a belief needs not be reassessed. Epistemic anxiety is what prompts re-evaluation of a belief. It's not that when you are epistemically anxious, you stop believing it, but what you start doing is reconsidering whether your belief, your belief is well-founded. 
So what epistemic anxiety does <coughs> prompts starting uh, deliberation. And what confidence does, it prompts stopping deliberation. So they are starting thinking about the issue prompt and stopping thinking about the issue prompt. And there is some talk of epistemic anxiety in the epistemological literature for different uh, purposes to argue in favor of invariantism against contextualism. But I, I use a similar notion of epistemic anxiety, something that sets the threshold of evidence, which could be misleading. Uh, required to trigger redeliberation. And several factors should uh, affect this. One is the practical importance of what is at stake. Right? It is really important to get it right. Any evidence to the contrary might make you want to redeliberate because it's a lot that's at stake. How confident you were in that belief to begin with, which is what I said at the beginning, if you are very confident in the belief, it is, I think, rational for you not to start re-deliberating, which after all involves a lot of cognitive effort, if all you have is slim evidence to the contrary. But also, and this is something that is central to my talk, a just a basal individual sense of vigilance or lack of vigilance. So I want to say a little bit more about this because it's central to my view. And I should recognize an indirect influence here, which is some of Karen Jones' work on trust and terror. So Karen Jones in Trust and Terror says that there is something that is more fundamental to trust, trust being a three-place relation, which is a, a basic level of safety sense of safety or not. If you feel the universe is hostile and you could be attacked at any point, right, that arm, and apparently this is something that uh, victims of sexual assault feel, they, their perception of the, of the world becomes different. Their perception of the world is something that potentially danger lurks at every time, right? And so there is a sense of Danger lurks every time. The universe is possibly hostile. Unsurprisingly, that affects your epistemic anxiety, right? So the idea here is, if uh, you can also do it in a fanciful philosophical way, right? So suppose, for whatever reason, you think you live in a de demon world. Well, if you think you live in a demon world, then you think that everything is possibly misleading, right? And if you think that anything is possibly misleading, you'll be on the lookout for misleading. And, and your level of anxiety right, will be higher, which means the threshold that prompts the, re the redeliberation will be lower. Right? And, and for instance, I mean, think of less fanciful cases. Think of a person who, for whatever reasons, comes to believe that people are lying to her about a real health condition. That person will become vigilant, much more vigilant to the threat of deception, and will start really sort of, the slimmest thing will prompt the redeliberation. But also, because of this level of anxiety, she will also start doubting her continuous redeliberation. Re so she will also start doubting whether she knows when 
to require deliberating, and that will create even extra anxiety because you do not know whether you you can tell when to re-deliberate re or when not. So there is there is this sense, right, that if you inhabit a world and perceive the world as threatening, that will globally affect your epistemic anxiety. Um, so for that reason, I think religion and spirituality is a great context in which to study intellectual humility because religious values and beliefs and convictions are often very important to people. And I'll come back to that in a second in terms of why that is. But uh, a great little body of research exists on the concept of sanctification, which focuses on whether people view really any aspect of life as being sacred. That means they've sanctified it. And the research shows that when people sanctify uh, beliefs or opinions or aspects of life, goals, strivings, that then they invest more in those things. They invest more uh, energy, more time, more resources. Those things um, evoke more emotion in their lives. Those things also cause them to protect what they sanctify more highly uh, than things that are not sanctified. And people experience more emotional distress and, and difficult emotions when those things are violated. And so for religion and spirituality, it's not even only that it's important to people, but it even has that those added uh, attributes that I was just talking about in terms of uh, this concept of sanctification. So I think that's why this is a great context in which we can look at people's levels of intellectual humility. So. If you Google humility and religion, you will not be at a loss for images like this. Uh, there are plenty of them out there that I think display a social perception that religion is inconsistent with open-mindedness and thereby possibly intellectual humility. Um, and I think there are a number of reasons that this social perception may be the case. We can certainly think of global events, historical events, uh, holy wars where people try to force their beliefs on others. Uh, but it's not only those socio-political contexts, I think also on individual levels, it can be difficult for people to, to display humility about their religious uh, convictions. Um, and you know that relates to the adage of not discussing religion or politics you know, in company. Um, and I think that um, uh, you know, we see that also in the research literature that uh, certain forms of religion uh, and religious behaviors or beliefs can be associated with showing less respect to outsiders towards those who disagree. Um, <coughs> and so that uh, can be potentially some of the underlying reason uh, for this. And I think both on the socio-political levels as well as the individual <coughs> level, the reason that uh, this may be the case is because of the great uh, amount of value that is gained from religious beliefs uh, and values. So if you think about the idea of terror management, so making sense of where do I go when life is over, uh, if you think about finding a, a source of meaning in life, if you think of uh, finding a way to cope with difficulties, all of those can be derived from one's religious uh, beliefs. And so the idea of changing those beliefs may be very threatening to a person. Again, kind of the discussion point we just had, it may then not be the drive for accuracy that is motivating that. There may be something else behind that in terms of the great amount of value that is gained from this. And so uh, it may be uh, for those reasons that intellectual humility uh, or that religion can form a barrier to being intellectually humble. But at the same time, 
Uh, it's been argued frequently that when we see you know, the socio-political or the interpersonal aggression toward outsiders, that that can be done in the name of religion, but is not consistent with the teachings of many religions. And so sometimes that religion may be just used as an excuse, and also some have argued that uh, religion can even offer a basis for greater intellectual humility, that our uh, humility about knowledge can stem from seeing oneself as an infinite being or as a limited being in relation to an infinite God or seeing oneself in relation to the complex workings of the universe that that motivates a sense of intellectual humility. Um, and so I think arguments can be made on the other side as well. There are some uh, theories of religious faith development that focus on religious and spiritual maturity being related to uh, showing greater uh, sympathetic understanding of other people and engaging in less dogmatic thinking, less black and white thinking. Uh, and so I think theoretically, really, we can go either way on this. And now we're going to move on to our last two talks of the episode. The first is by Stephen Sloman. The talk's entitled talking about values versus consequences, in which he explores why it's so difficult for people to explain why some political issues are so important to them. And the final talk by Heather Baddeley uh, is called Can Closed-Mindedness Be an Intellectual Virtue? And after a long weekend of discussing why and how arrogance is a problem, Heather Baddeley explores the instances in which maybe sometimes arrogance can be a good thing. So we took a bunch of issues that were hot topics in the 2012 presidential election, and we asked people their sense of understanding, um, and then we asked people to explain how the issue, how the policy issue, would lead to outcomes, um, explain in as much detail as they possibly could, right? That is, unpack the causal mechanisms by which the policy would operate. And then we asked for another sense of understanding, rating of their sense of understanding, and it significantly decreased. Um, so people seem to overestimate their, their understanding of policies, of political policies, the idea being that by getting people to focus on the mechanism by which these policies are going to lead to outcomes, you puncture their illusion, right? Because they realize they just can't provide that explanation. And not only that, but it reduces people's confidence, right? So this is a measure of extremity, the deviation between the midpoint of our rating scale and people's attitude about the various policies, and that also decreased. So ask people to explain rather than advocate a position, and you can, um, uh, you're more likely to achieve some kind of confidence. That's the idea. Asking people to generate reasons for their beliefs in the policy in our lab um, does not have the same effect. What we expected, based on a bunch of social psychology, is that it would actually increase polarization, right? It would make people feel more certain, because there's a lot of data showing that if you simply ask people to think about something or to talk about it among a like-minded group of people, that you increase polarization. We didn't find that, but we also didn't find this reduction. We didn't find this puncturing of the illusion. Um, so this is important, and it's kind of at the heart of what I want to talk about today, because the reason I think causal explanation differs so much from reasons is that causal explanation takes you outside yourself, right? 
When you ask people for a causal explanation, they have to think about the policy on its own terms. What are the consequences of this policy? What is it actually going to do in the world? As opposed to what we all do at the dinner table, at Thanksgiving dinner, if you're in this country, at Christmas dinner in other countries, which is talk about our reasons, which in general are not causal explanations, as Frank showed us yesterday. What people talk about are their preferences. Teenagers love to talk about their preferences, right? But we all love to talk about our preferences. They like to talk about their community, who else holds the beliefs that they have. Um, what people don't like to talk about is how things work. That's hard, right? That requires real cognitive effort. Okay, so before I, I get more into that, I want to point out that this is not a long-lasting effect, at least not in our lab. So we did this one experiment where we simply delayed by 10 minutes um, when people gave their second rating of understanding. Okay, so they gave the causal explanation, and then they answered a bunch of questions unrelated to the experiment, and then they gave us their second rating. Um, here were the issues. Um, very related to the ones that I showed you earlier. We can come back to them if you're interested. Uh, what we found is nothing after 10 minutes. This is the overall mean. This is what we got for each issue individually. We got, there was one issue, the nuclear issue, in which we found the decrease, but there was another issue in which we saw an equivalent increase. And for these two other issues, nothing. So the effect didn't survive 10 minutes. And similarly, when we plot um, the people's extremism, right, their, their attitudes, um, which represent the degree of polarization in the group, no difference between their judgment before explanation and after explanation when there's a delay. So my interpretation is that introducing a delay is like introducing a distraction. And what we're seeing is a very sort of conscious self-observation that it couldn't, I couldn't generate an explanation. I guess I didn't understand as well as I thought I did. But as soon as I'm no longer thinking about that fact, I, I go back to my original level of confidence in how I felt. Whether this reflects a, a personality or some sort of deep-seated feeling of arrogance or humility, I don't know. I do believe it's at least an attitude with regard to the propositions that were presented, right? these particular policies. So our explanation, um, and this is detailed in a book I wrote with Phil Frimbach, for why this illusion exists, um, is an idea that also comes from Frank. Thank God for Frank Heil. Uh, and that is that we live in a community of knowledge. There's a division of cognitive labor. As individuals, we only know so much. Our areas of specialization are very narrow. We depend on other people. And we depend on them so much that we don't know we're dependent on them. So we live in this illusion of understanding because we fail to distinguish our knowledge from other people's knowledge. Right? I think I understand how toilets work because I can access that knowledge by calling a plumber or by looking it up on the internet. 
That's a big one these days. Right? Um, so the community of knowledge is so deep-seated and is, is, it represents this um, sort of fundamental property of mind that we're not even aware that it's going on. We don't distinguish the source of knowledge, Because right? we don't have to mostly. Usually it's just not important where the knowledge comes from as long as we can access it. So one thing this suggests is that if we can get the community to agree, if we can get some group concurrence on the illusion, we might be able to extend its duration. It might not disappear after 10 minutes. Think about the most recent article you wrote, or about what it took to start writing your dissertation. At some point, you likely ignored relevant options in order to focus on developing your own answer. Not because it was your own, but because it was the answer. <laughs> okay? Because you thought it was true. You stopped reading alternative views. You tuned them out. You knew another article had just been published on your topic, but you ignored it in an effort to make progress on the solution you thought was correct. According to CM, the analysis of giving a close mindedness, this behavior is closed minded. I think there are some cases where this kind of closed minded action produces a preponderance of epistemic goods. Okay, where researchers on the verge of a big discovery ignore relevant but different work that has just been published in order to push forward and successfully complete their own line of inquiry. They may even, I think, causally need to ignore that work in order to make their discovery. Um, the kind of case I had in mind here, I have a friend who works for the National Institutes of Health on HIV research, and that was the kind of case I had in mind. Okay, I can say a little bit more about cases where there may be other cases like this, where we're closing off inquiries after we've gained just enough knowledge, where closed-mindedness um, might produce a preponderance of good epistemic effects. So if you look at 2C toward the bottom of page 5, right? Suppose I promise a friend that I'll make Pavlova for her party tomorrow. I've never made it before. I Google Pavlova, like, you know, a jillion things come up. Um, I read 20 recipes about how to do it by... But yeah, 20 seems like a lot to me too, Dan. I read 20 re recipes by celebrity bakers. I ignore the remaining 10 million recipes. I close off my inquiry. I keep my promise. I produce a moral good. I get the Pavlova done. I produce a pragmatic good. Do I produce epistemic goods? I think this is a tough case. I think it's going to depend. It could have been the 25th recipe that just gives me this massive insight into how brain works. Um, or it could be... Uh, that 20 is plenty, right? And I have reached the point of diminishing epistemic returns. Okay. Um, last chunk of stuff. I think the disposition of closed-mindedness can sometimes be an effects virtue in hostile environments. Here's the setup. So, um, assume, for the sake of argument, that the pervasiveness condition holds. Okay? So... That means that the widespread presence of an intellectual option in an environment is enough to make that option relevant, okay? Suppose the environment um, is epistemically hostile. It's saturated with options that are false or unreliable. 
Some of them are going to be explicit statements, like ignorance is strength. Some are going to be unreliable sources, like the dimwits and white judges fell the idiocracy. Um, some are going to be implicit norms that discredit women and people of color as sources of knowledge. The pervasiveness condition renders these options relevant. Here's the question that I've been thinking about. What's a knowledge-possessing agent to do when she wakes up in an epistemically hostile environment. Here I'm thinking of hostile environments like the one in 1984 in the Idiocracy. Okay? My answer is that epistemically, she should be close-minded. She should be unwilling to engage seriously with relevant intellectual options that conflict with what she already knows. So if she knows that 2 plus 2 equals 4, the Earth is round, she should be unwilling to engage seriously with 2 plus 2 is 5, the Earth, you know, the Earth is flat, and so on. Why? Because in an epistemically hostile environment, closed-mindedness is an effect structure. Okay. So when a knowledge-possessing agent is stuck in an epistemically hostile environment, surrounded by falsehoods and the dimwits of the idiocracy and so on, closed-mindedness about options that conflict with what she knows will minimize the production of bad epistemic effects for her. I'm going to argue that they're also, it's also going to minimize the production of bad epistemic effects for other agents and for the environment. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to the Why We Argue podcast, which I remind you is produced by the University of Connecticut's Humility and Conviction in Public Life Project with generous support from the John Templeton Foundation. You can follow the project on Twitter and on Facebook at at public humility. That's one word, public humility. Thank you so much and bye for now.